Hello and welcome to Front and Center, a show dedicated to insights and perspectives on commercial real estate investment across the public and private markets. Produced by Center Square Investment Management, Front and Center hosts timely and relevant conversations with firm thought leaders about the trends and drivers impacting the global real estate asset class. For more information, please visit centersquare.com. Welcome back to another episode of Front and Center. I'm Uma Moriarty, Senior Investment Strategist and Global ESG Lead at Center Square. And I'm here today with Joachim Kerr, Portfolio and Regional Manager in Asia Pacific for our global REIT platform. Joachim has always been a great resource with a wealth of knowledge on what's happening across the various markets in Asia Pacific. So he's the perfect person to really have here today and discuss some of the developments that we've been tracking across those global markets. So thanks for joining us today, Joachim. Hey, Uma. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm very excited to uh, finally be joining the podcast. Yeah. Um, So you are a European native and at this point, an honorary Singaporean citizen that's running our Asia Pac REIT coverage. Maybe just give us a quick background on how you got here and and set the stage for our listeners in terms of your Europe background. Yeah, absolutely. You are correct. I hail from Europe, Germany to be specific, uh, but I have been in Singapore and Asia since 2007, since the financial crisis, um, initially came for what was supposed to be a short posting out of my Amsterdam office. But I've obviously still, I'm obviously still here 15 years later. And the reason really is that I've always had a strong interest in real estate and Asia is a great market for real estate. It sits at the intersection of economics, of politics, of the society at large. There's No one in Singapore and the wider region that does not have an opinion on real estate, be it, you know, from the taxi drivers to the people you meet at conferences or anyone else. It's always a very central sector to to any political or economic debate. And that makes it extremely exciting. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's so great to have for us those boots on the ground, right, in terms of understanding real estate in all of these different markets, because real estate assets and the utilization of those assets is such a different story, block by block, even here in the US, let alone completely different countries and a totally different region, right? So one of the bigger differences, I think that's been really interesting to track over the last few years has really just been the return to office after COVID from a reopening perspective. And we think about office in the U.S. and some of these urban centers are still really struggling to get utilization back to where it was pre-pandemic, but it's a completely different conversation across Asia. So what are you guys seeing out there in terms of office utilization? Yeah, Uma, you're, you're absolutely correct. I think the first point to make is that across Asia and across the markets that we look at, each market sort of operates on its own economic timeline. And what that means is that, you know, we don't have as many of the unifying themes that we have in Europe, for example, or in the United States. So to your point, specifically on the question of office, we have seen each market approach the topic of remote working and work from home a little bit differently. What I would say, though, is that by and large, remote work is a lot less prevalent in Asia than it is in Europe or the United States. And what sometimes seems to get confused, specifically in this economic environment of slower growth, is the cyclical outlook for office and the structural outlook for office. And from a structural point of view, like I said, we are far less concerned about remote work than would be the case for for Europe or the United States. In fact, we were just in Japan and Korea these past two weeks, 
And by and large, the vast majority of people are back in the office five days a week. There's some exceptions where people can work from home for one day, but most certainly the idea of remote work representing a majority or even a large minority of one's working hours is not the case. And the same applies to Singapore and Hong Kong. And there are a lot of different factors for that. You know, there are cultural reasons for that, but there are also mundane factors. One being that housing, you know, house sizes are much smaller in most of Asia than they are in Europe and the United States. So having a home office is really a luxury and not something that most people have. And then the other benefit that we have in Asia is the fact that, you know, we live in large urban centers. We have access to extremely high quality mass transit systems. So the commute from home to the office is much less of a chore than it would be in Philadelphia, you know, or in London. Uh, I did exclude Australia in my summary just now, and that's because Australia is probably the one market in Asia where we see a little bit more take up of remote working. But here I would say that the benefit that office has is the fact that we continue to see a large influx of population into Australia. We see high levels of immigration. So even though we might see remote working uh, represent a larger share of one's working hours, the overall working population continues to grow quite dramatically across Australia. So that, again, creates a long-term tailwind for office demand. Yeah, super, super interesting stuff, especially as we figure out office in the U.S. One of the big questions today is around valuation, right? How much do values for these office properties need to be marked down? I mean, are you having that same type of conversation across the Asia markets? What are you thinking about as it relates to valuation from an office perspective? Yeah, absolutely. That's um, I, that, that's that's sort of one of the main discussions and conversations we have amongst ourselves and with other investors and management teams as well. And it's, you know, it's, it's tricky because like I said, there are really these two drivers, the cyclical and the structural driver. And it's sometimes difficult to ascertain, you know, are we seeing a decrease in office demand because of cyclical factors or are we seeing a decrease in office demand because of structural factors, because people are really spending less time in the office and will continue to spend less time in the office. Our view is quite strongly on the cyclical point, and we believe that once we start to see economic growth pick up again across Asia, we will see office demand improve. And in fact, the Japanese, the Tokyo office market was one where a lot of uh, analysts and investors had major concerns, given that we also saw a large influx of supply over the last six months. But vacancy rates have held quite steady, and uh, we are starting to see some segments of the Tokyo office market, some wards within Tokyo that are seeing, you know, vacancy rates in the back in the three to two percent range and office rental growth picking up again. So I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, it's really a, a cyclical issue across most of Asia, not a structural slash remote work one. Yeah, it's interesting you say two to three percent vacancy and, and positive rent growth. That seems to be effectively impossible to find across the U.S. market. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a different planet. <laughs> Absolutely. And you you know, you brought up Japan and maybe we'll shift the conversation there. You know, we've seen a big impact on the global markets of what's happening from the Bank of Japan really loosening their yield curve control policies and that's really pushed up rates and yields in Japan, but also resulted in a pretty meaningful shift in yields here in the US. Maybe just explain, you know, what's happening in the Japanese economy that's really driving these shifts in monetary policy. 
and and what's your outlook here, especially as it relates to real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So the one thing to mention is really inflation and inflation expectations. That's you know that's the the, the that's sort of the north star that um, that all investors and all economists and all strategists and anyone else who's interested in economics is focusing on in Japan. And as you and you know all of our listeners will know, Japan has struggled with deflation for decades now, and hence the BOJ instituted this extremely aggressive monetary loosening policy over the past 10 years, since Abenomics really, since Abe became prime minister a number of years ago. And that policy has continued under the successors of both the prime minister and the governor of the BOJ. What we see now is that thanks to, you know, increases in energy costs and some of the disruptions that we saw through COVID in the supply chains, inflation in Japan actually picked up and went into the high 3% range above the BOJ's long-term 2% target. So we're now seeing inflation in Japan at levels that we haven't seen in decades. And there's now a debate raging whether you know, we will continue to see that inflation at those levels or whether the drivers of that inflation are endogenous or really, you know, external energy prices. And as those energy prices come off, so will inflation come off. And that's where we are now. And that is a that debate will require some more information and some more data points. The positive point is that the BOJ is really sticking to you know, maintaining a very loose policy. In the past, it didn't always do that. It sometimes tightened too early and sort of extinguished the flame of inflation too early. So we're hopeful that this time around, you know, inflation will prove to be sticky, that we will start to see inflation expectations pick up in Japan. We, we did see positive wage growth this year. The hope is that we will continue to see that trend next year and subsequent years. And if we do, then we could see a material and long-term change in the inflation environment in Japan, and that would really be a game changer. And that's been one of the two key reasons why we've seen such an influx of investor interest and investment flows into Japan this year. The other reason, of course, is China. Absolutely. You're, you're lining up these questions so well for me. <laughs> I also wanted to talk to you about China, right? And I think one of the, the intricacies of the Asia-Pacific market, we alluded to these differences in terms of monetary policy, but I also think just very different regulatory policy frameworks across all of these different markets. And I think one of the more interesting developments is what's happening across China. I mean, what's your assessment today of what's happening across the Chinese property market? Yeah, China is the elephant in the room for us here in Asia. And the housing market, you know, used to represent almost a third of China's economy. So it was the, really the key driver of Chinese growth. And obviously, we all saw the stories, you know, in, in Western newspapers about all the building that was going on, ghost towns and the like. We were never too concerned around those things. We didn't really buy the extreme negatives. And we didn't also buy the extreme positives around Chinese growth and the Chinese housing market. We always tried to kind of find a middle ground uh, between those two extremes. And the same holds uh, this time around. Obviously, the Chinese housing market has gone through some major disruptions. You know, debt levels have been heightened for a lot of the Chinese developers for many, many years, which, you know, was always a concern for us. And, you know, the chicken have 
come home to roost, so to say. And we've seen a lot of dislocations and bankruptcies in that space. And given its importance to China's overall growth, you know, it's not just a problem for real estate investors. It's really a problem for the economy and the government as a whole. Now, we have seen some loosening because the government over the past decade or so instituted a number of tightening measures to cool demand and to increase supply. And it has now begun to unwind a number of those. And they have helped a little bit, but we're still seeing a sharp, over the past few months, we still saw a sharp reduction in volumes. We've seen prices under pressure and we've obviously seen, you know, a flow of news reports from developers unable to service their debt. So we feel that in order to really improve the overall market environment, the government, the Chinese government have to step in with a lot more stimulus than it has so far. And the question really is if the government can and is willing to do so. And because of all those disruptions, as I said earlier, you know, the disruptions in China are really one of the main reasons we've seen such strong inflows into Japan, because a lot of investors have been pulling capital out of China in response to what has happened. Yeah, a lot of different things evolving and developing across the Asia markets. Um, thank you for joining us and sharing some of your thoughts. And we'll definitely have you back on as, as we continue to see these markets develop and track these things over time. So thanks, everyone, for joining us and listening here today. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Front and Center. Thanks for listening to Front and Center. You can subscribe on your favorite streaming platform and please be sure to leave us a review. To stay up to date, you can visit our website at centersquare.com to access our thought leadership, sign up for our mailing list, or contact our team. We look forward to hearing from you. The content of this podcast is informational only and represents the viewpoints of the presenters at the time of recording. It should not be regarded as a solicitation nor investment advice. All information presented is subject to change at any time based on new data, analysis, or market conditions. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.